Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Lore Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. She's an ancient lake witch, descended from Cain, the first murderer. And as Seamus Haney so eloquently puts it, she's a tarn hag with savage talons, a wolfish swimmer who has gone her gluttonous rounds for a hundred seasons. This is Grendel's mother, a powerful creature of the depths, hell-bent on avenging her son's death. It is this aquatic hag that Beowulf must defeat, in the old English poem of the same title, by descending into the heaving depths of the lake. She is a water creature, deadly strong, supernatural, and lurking in murk, in slithery water depths that squelch and sicken. In fact, her name in Old English is Merewife, with mer, as in mermaid, meaning pool. And the lake she lives beneath is described by the writer of Beowulf as Grundleas, or bottomless, a description applied to many ponds in England. This water witch tale from England's Anglo-Saxon heritage is only part of an amphibious repertoire of waterlogged folklore full of beasts and ill intentions. From the deep lochs of Scotland to the murky sylvan ponds of England, and then lastly to the otherworldly tempestuous coasts of Ireland, these are tales tinged with algae and sea salt. Perhaps these creatures reflect the ambivalent relationship between humans and the alien realms of lake and sea, both necessary to human life and yet unpredictable and deadly. Forget Ariel and Disney representations. Instead, let's delve into the dark folkloric past and hear what a writer from the 19th century, Suffolk, has to say. Upon asking a local child what a mermaid was, the child responded with, the nasty things that hook you into the water. Welcome to the Watery Worlds episode of Mythos. Story 1. The Kelpie Over the heath, peat, and scree, Children full of energy and free-flight fancy raced down the hill slopes towards the highland loch. Invigorated by the crisp highland air, the fearless children thrust their carefree energy from their vocal cords and into the sky, which alternates between blinding sun and charcoal black gloom. The sinister clouds taking creaturely shapes almost swimming through the sky with predatory movements. The children whoop and shout and run and jump. And something amphibious, something seemingly one with the waterweed and soggy debris of the lake, it hears the children. Their joyful shouts barely penetrate the surface of the deep and to the creature's water-wombed ears. Their voices sound like the cries of the drowned. The creature shudders with delight, kicks spindly equine limbs, and thrusts its muck-covered equine nose just above the surface of the water. And the equine nose quivers as it's assailed by the scent of pumping blood and smooth young flesh. And while the other children whoop and shout, one little boy halts midway down the scree-covered hill. 
there's an unusually large rippling in the lake below. Straining his eyes, the boy fancies he sees a figure swimming just below the surface, something with legs almost like a horse's, yet with amphibious, fluid kicks. But the impression flies from the little boy's mind as he flies down the hill, beckoned by the hypnotic quality of his friend's summoning shouts. He does not see the uncanny being emerge from the lock, snorting softly as it climbs onto the Scots pine hidden shore. The boys scream their mock fear of never being able to stop, shrieking as their hill-running velocity reaches uncontrollable and exhilarating levels. Fast thrills what every child seeks. Yet, something makes them halt as they near the tree line. A stunning specimen of horse is emerging from the shore-hugging woodland, and the boys are transfixed. The slate-gray steed's shining coat is like the storm-cloud-ridden highland skies. The horse locks eyes with them, and the boys are enamored with its fine, intelligent gaze and its equine figure, so sleek and emanating pure, muscular energy. Like one hypnotically drawn, one boy walks up to the horse and immediately pulls himself onto its back. He beckons the others to join him, and as the three other boys approach, they are both terrified by and yet in awe of the horse's gigantic size. Two others, uh, with some difficulty, pull themselves onto the unusually calm steed. But one child, the one they always teased and chided for being a bit of a wimp, approaches cautiously. Strange slivers of waxy green are hidden in the shining gray horsehair, a salty, squelchy smell, too. The last child only cautiously touches the horse with his finger, remembering his strange aquatic vision on the hillside. And suddenly, his finger is enveloped with what seems like quicksand and glue tinged with a nasty between-the-toes muck. He screams and pulls, but his finger, and then his hand, is held fast, as if the souls of the drowned or an algae witch lay buried in the horse's hair, gripping him with steel and ill intent. And the other children are screaming, and his raw throat hysterics rise in crescendo with the others. The horse bolts, the boy is dragged. His friend's legs are gripped by the slithering, writhing seaweed hair of the horse. No, not just gripped, but their skin is melded with it. Perhaps there is blood, too. But the boy becomes distracted by their destination. The cold lock of unknown depth. It's steel-gray waters so close now you can see foam and glints of muted sunlight. The kelpie, for so that's what it is, snorts with flesh-hungry anticipation and sleek equine exertion. His knife, yes, the child digs into his pocket. With no hesitation, he cuts off his finger and drops painfully to the stony shore just before the horse plunges into the water. His friend's screams end with a sickening anticlimactic splash. The world is quiet and remains quiet except for the quiet sobbing of a mother. And later, 
the soft rustle of lake waves bringing a lone liver to shore. Story to the Nukalavi. Our great northern climes have a jagged, quiet beauty, not so much desolate as embraced by great rocky lines and covered in lichen, not so much desolate as flowing with surging cold oceanic power at its shorelines. But on a moonless night, the naked dark makes us feel naked in ourselves, stripped of the strength and assurance and familiarity we know during the day. And it was on just such a night that a Scotsman, Tomas, riding his horse towards home in the naked dark, found himself not only laid bare by the blackness, but also laid bare by the feeling of the empty space of the sea on one side of the road and the unfathomable deep of the lock on the other. He felt a rabbit-twitching sort of vulnerability. Up ahead on the road, a shape it, it moved towards him, a human pace, but strangely, with an equine dressage kind of prance trot, Tomas felt neck-pringling repulsion at the movement. Yet, it was too pitch black for him to see anything very clearly. But then, there were limbs, certainly but a distinct lack of feet. They seemed to be fawn-like hooves that had a taunting prance about them. Tomas couldn't breathe. His throat was so constricted by fear, but not just fear, absolute disgust. For now, the creature was close enough. In one gut-jolting observation, Tomas took in what seemed like a misshapen form stripped of skin, visible muscles jolting and thick black blood running through exposed veins. God, like a minotaur turned inside out. The powerful white equine sinews moving and pulling as if the beast were a terrible sort of puppet. This was a horrible hybrid of both man and horse, mingled with Tomas's wordless terror, was a knowing, a familiarity. No thought, action. Tomas urged his horse, his steed rearing up and planting his hooves in fresh water from the lock. Nuckleby. It was the Nuckleby. No other creature would snort and writhe at the touch of fresh water. Tomas's thoughts became vague. The only clear sensation was the terror-stricken grip of his hands on reins, and his horses dashed towards a stream, crossing the road ahead. He felt something swipe by his ear just behind his head. Something had tried to grab him. Yet surely, the beast couldn't be this close. Tomas urged the horse, and it leapt over the stream. And when he looked back, he saw the creature's long arms laying limp on the ground. Its horse mouth opened, something like a neighing and a human scream combined, bellowing into the naked night. Story 3. Jenny Greenteeth In an ancient Shropshire woodland, twilight darkened and mysterious, some children from Ellesmere were looking for a fright. By the stagnant, scum-covered pond, they joined hands. Surrounded by the preternaturally prolific forest, all tortuous oak limbs and thick holly, they began their ring game singing. There was a lady dressed in green, fair Alara Lido. There was a lady dressed in green, down by the greenwood side-o. One very bright and creative child had suggested the pond 
as a deliciously creepy place to sing and perform their song story of a murderous mother. For this pond also belonged to a murderous lady, an amphibious one, lurking beneath, perhaps even within, the stagnant scum of the pond. Of course, this wasn't true, and the children continued their games, opting into hide-and-seek amongst the sylvan maze around the pond. Twilight came quickly, though, and while they all knew they should go home, they were too caught up in the moment. Breathless anticipation, the sudden squeal of being found, the heart-pounding moment of being it, and the desperate impulse to rid oneself of that title. They did not notice the algae scum almost lurid now in its dark evergreen twilight hue, did not notice it begin to slide and slither uncanny movements with mind and intention. One brave or perhaps foolish child stood at the edge of the now blackwater portal and said, I'll be Jenny Greenteeth and I'll be it. The children squealed in terrified delight, not noticing directly behind the brave child a strange protrusion in the middle of the pond, something like a hand, but made out of muck and squelch and grossness and slipperiness. The scum seemed to be shivering like a living layer of diseased pussy skin. The children dispersed, breathless and tiptoeing in all directions as the child counted. He reached the number 20, and then silence. There were only insects and the susurration of leaves. As the child took a few steps from the shore towards the dark woodland, he chanted, I'm Jenny Greenteeth, green scum is my kin. If you near my lair, I'll claw you. One pair of hidden children looked at each other. Muffled giggles were cut short, just as their friend's rhyme had been cut short. Silence absolute, except the insect calls, which now felt louder, more hysterical. The seconds passed, and the children were certain that their friend was trying to trick them into emerging. More seconds passed, and little hearts pounded. Surely they would hear leaves crunching beneath his feet as he searched for them. I mean, surely... That was the fun of the game, after all, staying as silent as possible while the tread of the dread it got closer and your heart pounded in your ears. But there was nothing, just silence, except the insect screams. Were they always this loud? Children began to emerge. They began calling their friend's name, certain he was playing a trick. And as the moon became clear in the sky and their tummies ached with the anxiety of knowing they should be home by now, they realized that something was so very terribly wrong. They called and called until the calls became screams and tears, but he did not come. Now, the terror of punishment became insignificant, and they knew they must rush home, tell mums and dads that their dear friend was lost. But wait... There was another one of them missing. Him too, they called and called until the calls became screams and tears. And finally, they found him. His knees drawn to his chest so tightly that it seemed as if he were trying to make himself as small and as invisible as possible. He stared, 
eyes as big as saucers at the pond and for many minutes did not respond to his friend's anxious whispers and tugs and pleadings. Finally, they were able to drag him up and off while he whimpered and shivered from the cold, for he had wet himself thoroughly. The child was mute for a time, but when he did speak, well, the other children, now old, would only speak of it in whispers and fragments. They spoke of the pond scum gathering itself as if sculpted by a cruel artist. They spoke of an emaciated form, then, hunger and its algaic sinews. They spoke of waxy, repulsive weeds clinging to a green skull-like head, sharp teeth covered in spongy moss and long, slender fingers like reeds, rotten and festering. Jenny Greenteeth, spawn of that ancient Saxon muckhag, Grendel's mother. She had gotten their friend, and he has not been seen or heard of since. Story 4 on Wajinwara, the Seal Woman The Dingle Peninsula, Ireland Gentler ways of verdant pastoral beauty suddenly ending at jagged coastline, battering rams of white waves crashing and hissing with all the weight of the North Atlantic. Beaches recline with horizontals then below the majestic cliffs, and many a fisherman has walked the shores, gazing at the deadly black rocks that are both wonder and certain death. This time, though, the familiar coastal flows and crashes are tinged with a low hum of strange energy. The fisherman feels earth and grass in his limbs, feels the slow creak of his humanity with an unusual sense of, well, contrast, the void between his air-breathing lungs and the aquatic energy around him feels vast and black and deep. Then, on a black rock just a small distance from the shore, something human? Surely no one would be swimming on such a cold and tempestuous day. But yes, it is a human form, and not only human, but a woman. The fisherman slowly walks to a bit of rock that juts out into the sea and walks onto it to get a closer look. A woman? And my, she is a woman. Arms, legs, and hips of elegant power, streamlined but full of muscular energy. Long, long, long black hair, as black as an ocean trench. The fisherman is so transfixed, he doesn't notice something very odd on a bit of rock just below his feet. A massive wave crashes in front of him and jolts him from his reverie, and he sees it. A shiny gray mass of skin? A seal skin? How strange. Ah, but not so strange. The fisherman recollects the old story of the, of the Anwai Janwara and promptly snatches the skin up. The woman, previously sitting, jumps up, turns, and glares at him. She then squats down, one hand on the ground, the other on her knee, as if she's waiting to spring into a 100-yard dash. The fisherman can see a rippling, wave-like power beneath her skin, and his heart pounds. She leaps into the water. The fisherman grips the skin, waiting. A hand juts out and grips a rock just below him. 
the woman's soaked black head emerges from the water and her eyes catch his. She stands before him, her face set, a bestial snarl on her face. The fisherman is terrified, and yet, even her curled lip and wolf-like glare are beautiful. And without a word, the fisherman turns, the skin gripped in his hand, and he walks towards his cottage. The woman, also silent, follows behind, and once in the field where the cottage stands, beyond the sound of crashing waves, she barks and howls in despair. And so she endured the earth weight of milked breasts and bloody birth. She endured the civilized hearth and the pestering needs of weak and useless human children. What she would do for her skin, she had searched high and low, embarked and howled in despair when she could not find it. She could sense its presence, her precious skin, seaweed-tinged, insulted liberty, a scratching, hungry, intuitive beckoning that drove her to madness, that drove her to cutting deeply into her own flesh, to taste the tang of her sea-born blood, the taste of her family and of her ancestors. Sometimes she would lick the skin of her sweat-drenched children after a full day of play and would terrify them with her barking, howling despair. And yet would feel guilty, for the children were her own. She had barked and howled so much in the early days, and now she simply did not speak at all, and the fisherman's heart grew dark with resentment. And his male relatives were astonished at his weakness. His father tutted that his only son would take such nonsense from a woman. His grandfather only shook his head, wondering that the fisherman could call himself a man if he hadn't put that damn woman in her place. But it was his uncle who had advice. I would beat that woman within an inch of her life if she treated me that way. I guarantee she would talk then. The fisherman was not a cruel man and could not bring himself to do such a thing. He invited his uncle over, however, to see if this stern man could at least make his wife feel ashamed of herself. And so the uncle tried. He pushed Seal Woman into a corner and shouted at her spittle at the corners of his mouth. You wild bitch, you seaweed-eating slut. Your kin must have nasty, salted blood crawling with the nasty creatures of the deep. Your, your kin must be slithering around the ocean floor, all webbed fingers and nasty skin and patchy bolt skulls. You come from a cursed place, and your soul is as foul as nasty seaweed. Show some damned respect. Seal woman heaved with rage, clenched her fists until her nails cut into her palms and her head nearly exploded with the sense of its presence, her precious skin, seaweed-tinged insulted liberty. Oh, how she longed for it. She looked up and looked her eldest son in the eyes. He was weeping for her. And so it came to pass, when her uncle and her husband were both fast asleep, that her little boy whispered in her ear, It's in the loft, under a floorboard, and tucked away in an old fishing bucket. For he too knew the old tales, and knew that his mother needed to be freed.
The deed done, they both raced to the beach, the little boy now weeping. Don't forget me, mother. Please don't leave me forever. The seal woman stood on the shore, the surf surging over her feet. She cuddled her little one and wept too, yet she could not stay. Knowing this, her little boy slowly pulled away and stood before her. Go, mother. I want you to be happy. And so it was. He watched as her sleek seal body dove into the heaving waves, not knowing that she would return, and drag his mortal body into the sea to purge his soul of the unneeded weight of earth and air and to keep her with him forever. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening. <laughs>